At this time, I want to go ahead and dismiss all kids ages 3 through 9. All kids ages 3 through 9, you are dismissed to go back with Miss Liz. For those of you who are staying with us, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18. We're looking at verse chapter 18 this morning. We're going to begin um, covering just the first nine verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And when Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him, his own as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And so Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing and met King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. Give us in these moments hearts to see and to rest in your love. That in resting in your love, you would change us. Reflecting your love to our neighbors. Forgive us, Father, when we have not loved you with our whole hearts. When we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. But Father, this is something that we need you to change in us. So work in our hearts in these days, in these moments. In Jesus' name. You, each and every one of you, were made for love. You were made to be loved. We see this as we go back into the beginning of all that was made. When God made man and woman and his image bearers, you were made to be a people who were in his presence, knowing God. The presence of shame, the presence of all that which separates us from that love is foreign. It's an enemy. It's a usurper into God's good world, into his creation. It is not the way things are originally supposed to be. And all the love and all the hunger that you have, that you long for, and whether it's in the opposite sex or in, in privilege or in esteem or power, it really comes back 
to that original love by which you were made. That love that you long for, I don't care how much of an introvert you are. I don't care how much of a person that you are isolated and you just want to be away from people. Whatever hermit mentality you have, you are a person who deep down craves and longs for love, to be loved. But the problem is, as sin has entered into the world, that love and our love for God, because we were not, we're both made to be loved and to love. And sin corrupted. And we began looking for that love outside of God to satisfy us. And it's this siren call of the enemy that is constantly calling to us over and over again. Come, find your love, find your satisfaction, find your peace in me. Apart from God, God can't satisfy it. I can. And over and over again, we see the domino effects of this misplaced love again and again and again in our lives. And so much of the chaos, so much of the harm, so much of the psychosis that we see in our own lives, the tortured existence that we seem to have, our loneliness, it really comes back to this. You were made for a different love than we seek. You were made to be loved by God and for God. And when we get these moved out of the ways, it's the fruit of it, the end results, isn't freedom, but it is brokenness. It's shame. It's loneliness again and again and again. And so we're going to be looking today in this passage and we're going to see once again two different ways of life. Once again, illustrated by a father and a son, Saul and his son, Jonathan. And in these two different approaches, we see radically end results. Two different ways. And when you look and you begin to peel behind the surface of what is going on between both of these two lives, you see ultimately one who is deeply insecure, one who is seeking to find their love and their affirmation, their very existence, their identity in something apart from God. And the end result is chaos. It's a restlessness. But then we see the beautiful song that is sung by Jonathan, who finds his identity in God, who's able to rest who he is and his accomplishments and his purpose in God. And we see instead of the chaotic sound that comes from Saul and the poison that just seems to fill the environment, you see a song of love that goes forth and blesses people. And so we begin looking first at the tragic case of Saul. And what we see right off the bat is what we've seen already play itself out so many different times in King Saul is one of insecurity and that insecurity bringing forth restlessness. And so we see right off the bat, we need to understand this. 
It is our insecurities. When we give way to these insecurities that come from misplaced love, the end result is a restless inner life. Is a restless inner life. And if we remind ourselves, because again, this doesn't come to us in a vacuum, the context of what we see in Saul, it really shouldn't surprise us that Saul is in this place. He was never a person who was able to rest in the fact that God had chosen him. He was never one who felt like he could just rest in, in God's merciful appointing of him, saying, you are my king. There's a sense in which he couldn't just accept God's grace and God's mercy in that. And what constantly followed him was an insecurity. Rather than being able just to receive God's love, God, the fact that God had chosen him, he constantly instead wanted to find his security and his accomplishments in what he would do in his position of being loved by the people. And so what we have seen over and over again was a deeply insecure individual because he never felt like he deserved what he got and because he couldn't receive what he got with grace, with mercy to just simply rest in God and in God's sovereignty and God's protection and the fact that God would be the one who would protect him, he constantly responded with manipulation. And so we saw this in the beginning all the way going back. Um, uh, to his very first disobedience. What was going on with Saul? And once again, back then we saw a, a juxtaposition between him and Jonathan. And I highlighted this. We saw Saul as one who wanted to respond by seeing that he had his story, his life that he wanted to do. And he wanted to invite God into that story. But he tried to, uh, but it, it was his story. And so the end result of that was him trying to manipulate God through his religious activity versus Jonathan, who instead really saw himself as part of God's story and was able to submit himself and trust himself to God's grace, God's mercy, God's story, God's provision within there. We also have seen that we've seen this continual implosion of character a fear within Saul. And we also are reminded that he knows. He has already been told to him by the prophet Samuel that he is going to lose not only his dynasty, but his very kingdom of itself, that God had chosen another to replace him. But instead of responding out of fear of God in that, he seems to have responded with the need for manipulation. He seems to have responded to the need to try to control the situation himself. And so we find now David is now the hero. He has accomplished what no one else would. He has fought the giant Goliath. It was God's true anointed one who was the one who was the victory. And we see right off the bat, and the first example is, is Saul wants to keep David close by him. Hey, this guy's a winner. I want to keep uh, people who are insecure. They want to keep some winners by them that they can use to, to promote themselves. But we find that he has now been triggered, so to speak. His insecurities has been made much of. And so what was it that, that caused this insecurity? 
It was the singing and the praise of the women who were seeking to celebrate God's victory over God's enemies. But because he's insecure, because he's looking at all from an internal scope that can't see past himself, rather than being able to praise God, rather than being able to say, oh, wow, what an incredible thing that God has done, he instead turns it into this inner turmoil of fear, of isolation, a feeling like he is constantly being abused by others. And so we see, what is it that, that had taken place? It was the song of the women. And the women sang to one another as he celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And notice this, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Rather than being able to view him as an ally, rather than view him as God's provision for God's people, he views him as simply someone to keep his eye on, someone who makes him nervous. And so we begin to see this continued descent as his insecurities brings back not, not strength, but it brings him into a place of inner turmoil and fear. And so as we continue on, if we were to continue on reading in chapter 18, we would see the constant theme of this as Saul is, is just imploding into fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity. And as he implodes into this fear and insecurity, what it does, as all insecurities do, it makes you become obsessed. It causes you to further and further draw inward. To look more and more into yourself. The end result is madness. We see once again the, 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 the hostile spirit the, 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 of the Lord comes upon Saul. And once again he goes into a fit of madness. And so while David is playing the harp. The response of the king to this hero that clearly has shown that God is with him is to take a spear and throw it and try to pin and kill David. Now, someone sent me an article from the Babylon Bee this week saying it must have been because David was trying to play over and over again, smoke by the water, smoke on the water, but that's not the case. What you see is a descent into madness. As he continues to go inward, he becomes more and more isolated. His thoughts ever take go inward, and he becomes obsessed. And as he becomes obsessed, what we see within there is what always happens when we begin to find our identity and our hopes and our security in something other than God. You see, when we begin to often find, we become confronted with this, this the, the gospel of Christ that says you can only find your identity in God. Sometimes we think, well, but does that mean I can't love football? Does that mean I can't love my family? Does that mean I can't be proud of my job? What does that mean? It does mean, certainly, that we can't find those as sources of life for us. They can't become sources of, of in which we find our very existence, our neediness to draw life from them. 
And sometimes we think, well, is that a fair trade? I really enjoy football. I really enjoy my family. Is this limiting? But in fact, it's actually life-giving when we find our identity first and foremost in Christ. Because what happens is all these other things, they will never be able to satisfy. They can all be gone like that. Your job, your family even, your health, your finances, they can be taken from you like that. And even if they're not taken from you, even if they're given to you, they will never fully accomplish what your soul is hungry for. They promise life. Oh, if you just gave yourself and find, found your identity in being the successful businessman and being the successful parent, the successful mom, having these successful kids, it will never become enough because anything that even remotely threatens them will undo you. They promise life, but like King Saul, they will end up causing you to become obsessed. They will cause you to become needy and codependent on these things. And ultimately, rather than giving you life and satisfaction, they will rob you. They will always, always rob you. And much of the fruit of that robbing will find itself internally like screws grinding upon you. As, as he sees, and one of the things that comes out constantly in chapter 18 is as he constantly, Saul constantly tries to make these plots to kill David, whether it's through his spear or whether it's through the plots which we're about to talk about by trying to get him killed by the Philistines as he sends them out to battle. Instead of making him over all of the army, he makes him a captain of a thousand and he sends them out into these battles to try to get him killed. And David, rather than getting killed, he becomes successful every time. And that just drives Saul further and further into his madness. And over and over again, it becomes obvious. It says, and God was with David. God was with David. But rather than being able to rejoice as the king, that God is at work in his kingdom, protecting his people, he just becomes more and more angry as he becomes more and more fixated on himself. He's not happy that the enemies of God's people are being defeated. He's unhappy that his rival, or the one he perceives to be his rival, is winning. He can't take, he can't take solace in the bigger picture of the bigger win because it's all about himself. And he is imprisoned in his selfishness and in his narcissism and in his isolation. This isn't life. He was looking for life and the security of being king, and instead what he found was death. That's the first thing we see with these insecurities. The second thing that we see with all these insecurities is as much as so many of them may be relationally driven, as we become more and more obsessed, as we begin to find our identity and our hopes and the life that we long for to satisfy us in other things, even other people, what that actually causes us not only is to have an inner life of turmoil, but to actually become isolated from other people and people become pawns. They become objects to us. And we see this quite clearly right off the bat in his insecurity. And this was already noted in a previous passage. Um, Saul, anytime he saw a man of valor, somebody that he could use, he kept them close. Not because he, he loved these men, 
but because he sought for ways to, to make himself more secure. He sought to use people. And now it begins off looking like he's trying to use David. But as that becomes a threat, he's got to push David away. He's got to take care of David. And so he has a couple of different schemes. One is he wants to first use his enemies. These enemies no longer become enemies of God, but they become his tools to try to dispatch with David. So the Philistines are the first people that simply becomes pawns and objects, no longer looking at the bigger picture. But then, even more tragically, what we see is he then longs to use his own family, his daughters. And so he hatches a scheme, right? First, he seeks to offer his eldest daughter to David and says, if you'll be my man, if you'll go and fight the Lord's, my enemies and the Lord's uh, battles, then I'll give you my eldest daughter. Now, this doesn't happen. And scholars are divided. The text isn't real clear. Is it that David rebuffs and doesn't take Saul up on his offer? Or did Saul renege on his offer and basically promised David this and then in the last moment gave his eldest daughter to another man? It's not fully clear and scholars are divided about what happens. But regardless, his first plan is to try to use David Use his own daughter's marriage in hand to try to lure David into this scheme to, to get him killed. Now, when this doesn't work, whether it's because David um, uh, doesn't bite or because Saul changes his mind, he finds out the text goes on and it emphasizes that all the people love David, but then it also says his own second daughter loves David. And so rather than looking at this and saying, oh, here's a great fit. Here, I can help make my daughter happy or I can find this union. I can turn this enemy into a, a part of my family. He seeks to use now his second daughter as a way to dispatch with David. And so once again, he offers his second daughter to David and says, once again, I'll give her to you in marriage. She loves you, David. And David's response is just the same, and, and, and even a little bit more, because he says, who am I that I should be the son-in-law to the king? Who is my family that I should be, be incorporated into the king's family? And furthermore, I have no money. I have nothing to offer as a dowry. And so Saul, being a manipulator and a quick thinker, he thinks, aha, I've got you, David. So he says, here's what I want. I want, he doesn't say deaths, he uses the foreskins, but he says, I want, I want you to kill a hundred Philistines. Surely he'll get killed in this endeavor. Instead, God is with him and he brings 200 Philistine foreskins to Saul. But yet, what do we see in this? Saul is now using his daughters in the same way he's using his enemies. Why? Because he's become so self-obsessed with this. We often think within this that if we can find our, our identity in our, in our relationships with people, they'll fulfill us. But in the end, what that does is that becomes 
people become objects for us to manipulate. We become needing something from them rather than feeling the ability to fully love them. Let me give you an example of this. I have a, a friend, no one who goes to this church, this isn't about any of that. But I have a friend who has a mother-in-law. And this mother-in-law has always had a, a difficult relationship with the daughter, with this, my, my, my friend's wife. And a big reason that there's always been a strained relationship is because the mother-in-law has always sought to find her identity in this relationship with her daughter. And that has created this sense of control and manipulation. And it manifested itself in, in even the way they, they would do Facebook. And, and what it wanted, the, the mother-in-law wanted, was for everyone to be able to see and to be able to praise, oh, what a great mother-daughter relationship they have. And so everything was done to try to create this image and look of this relationship between this mother and daughter. And it became extremely toxic. And rather than drawing them together, the daughter actually had to push against that and say, no, this is not healthy. This is not good. And as, as the daughter would begin to push against the, and, and, and set up boundaries, that created all kinds of instability with the mother-in-law. Why? Because you're denying her what she thinks will bring her happiness, satisfaction. This can happen with in-law relationships all the time through this manipulation. And what we often move into that thinking that we're going to make the relationship right and well, but what does it always happen? There becomes a separation. There becomes division within there. The more we long to find our identity in something, the more we see it leave and our grasp like vapor. Why? Because it was never meant to bring you happiness and satisfaction. Not like the love of the Lord. And then eventually what happens when we find our identity and our longing and these other things and these relationships and these jobs and these places outside of resting in the love of God, out of our fear and in our, of our bitterness, we will begin to try to hurt people, to, to protect what we have. Now, we see an extreme example of this, of course, with Saul, because Saul actually literally tries to hurt. He's trying, not only is he scheming to kill David, but he's taking a, a spear and he's actually throwing, trying to, to kill him. Now, personally, if I'm David, I'm I'm not one to marry his daughters either because I'm like, this is a volatile situation. And many of you, you may be saying, well, I haven't gotten to that point yet. And hopefully none of you have moved to the place of physical violence in your jealousy and in your insecurity and in your bitterness. But physical violence isn't the only form of violence. Gossip is a form of violence. As we seek to tear people down. Oh. I'm not getting what I want with this relationship. So let me, let me just tear them down. Let me bring them down a peg or two. Let me make myself feel better. As I gossip about this co-worker. 
as I gossip about this family member, about this person who may be sitting a few pews away from you. Let me tear them down a little. Or what often happens as we've built our identity and we feel that identity cracking and not living up to that identity, this happens a lot of times to us guys when we're finding our identity and being the perfect male, the perfect provider, the perfect person at work, and it's not working out. And what do we end up doing? We ended up exploding, oftentimes verbally to the very people, the last people we want to explode and take it out on. We become just angry because no one is giving us the love. We wouldn't use that because we're men. We don't say that. But that's what it points down to. We're longing to find our love. We're longing for our spouses. We're longing for our neighbors. We're longing for our children. We're longing for our, our bosses to declare us justified. And to find our identity in that declaration of justification. And when we don't do it, eventually the anger pins up and we explode. And so we see all of this chaos, all of this turmoil that comes from it. But here, in addition to Saul, Saul's not the only person we see here. We see someone else here, and that's Jonathan. And what we see in Jonathan is when we find our rest in God, that gives us the freedom and to love and be loved. It gives us the freedom to love and to be loved. Jonathan, once again, he serves as this incredible foil against the madness of Saul. Here, what do we see immediately? And part of us may have been wondering, where was Jonathan in in? in this chat in, in David and Goliath in chapter 17. We don't know. But here's what we do know. What is immediate response to David? Well, let's take a look at it. Verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him. And he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. You see, what have we found out about Jonathan previously? Jonathan was a great battle hero. He had led the people of Israel into battle against the Philistines previously on, on two different occasions. He was a war hero. You would think this guy might, if anybody, feel a little threatened. I mean, hey, we got this young kid. He's, he's trying to steal my thunder here a little. I'm the one who's supposed to do, go out and do crazy things like fighting Philistines after climbing a ledge. And here he is. He's going out and fighting a giant with a sling. But rather than viewing David as a rival, as someone who endangers his own reputation, his own esteem with the people and with the, the armies, we don't see any sense of that. And why? I believe it goes back to what we've already seen with Jonathan because he's not trying to live his story and make his story come out where he has this identity, but rather he is submitting himself to God's story and entrusting himself to God. In other words, it's all about God, not him. 
And he is simply resting and trusting in God's sovereignty. And we see that even later on in the story where Jonathan quite clearly says, look, my own dad, we all know you're going to be the next king. And he's not upset with that. I'm going to be your second in command. He doesn't view, he's not threatened by David. Why? Because he's secure in who God is. He's secure in God's plan for the future. He's secure in trusting who God has chosen to be the anointed one. And so we see as well that Jonathan also doesn't try to go out and and just try to do something stupid to try to prove he's on equal par with David either. You see, a lot of times this happens for us when we've taken our identity in something. Let's say something good. Like maybe you're really good at serving other people. Maybe you're really good at providing dinners for people who have been uh, house, uh, been in the hospital. And maybe you've gotten to be the reputation of, oh man, I know so-and-so does such an incredible job. And then sister so-and-so comes in and whereas you brought a nice salad, they brought this incredible casserole. And you're thinking, well, we can't have this. This person, this, this little upstart's trying to, you know, come into my little territory here. I gotta wear myself out. I, next time I'm gonna bring them a salad and a casserole and a dessert. We'll see how that upstart handles that. We don't see that with David, or with Jonathan. Rather than feeling threatened and insecure, they're able to love, they're able to rejoice in God's provision. Look at what God has done for his people, for Israel. Praise the Lord. And what does that free him to do? Don't miss this. It's easy because what follows this is, is Saul trying to throw a spear and we get lost in the craziness of that situation. And we don't see the craziness of what Jonathan has done. With this young kid, he made a covenant with him. A covenant, not just a friendship, a covenant with him. And notice what else he does. He stripped himself of his robe, his armor, even his sword and bow and his belt. Now keep in mind, what have we already seen from previous? It's not like there was a lot of swords out there. We've already seen the, the Philistines have monopoly on the metalworking. And so we saw previously that only Saul and Jonathan had swords. This prince, and so many of these are symbols of his authority, of his being the heir. He removes them from himself and he gives them to David. Scholars are divided. It's hard to tell for sure, but there may be even a recognition that in this, that David's going to be the next heir. As he gives so much of these symbols of being the prince to David. What's the point in all of this? Because he has found his rest in God. He's not looking for the people to justify him as this great captain. He's not looking for the army to, captive, to satisfy his, his thirst for approval. 
He's not looking for his victories against his enemies to justify his existence before God. He's not even looking for this title of prince and future king to be his only hope for a good future. He's able to rest in God. He's not looking for anyone but God to justify him. And that frees him to love. And this is what you need to understand, folks. You will never be able to love until you first are able to receive love. Until you are first able to free, find your being loved completely and utterly by the grace of God and receive that as nothing but you haven't earned that love, but God loves you because of who he is and not what, who you are. You yourself will never be able to fully love because you're always going to be looking for that to justify you. But when you find your complete and other justification in your love and who God is, that frees you to love, to hold nothing back. Because it's all secondary. The love that, you're, that you are allowing to satisfy your soul is the very love your soul was made to find its rest in. The only one that will satisfy you. And it's the only one you can be fully secure that will not be removed from you. Because it's based on who God is and not who you are. It's not based on the circumstances. So many men struggle Women too, I suppose. When they retire, where's my identity? Where's my sense of self? Who am I? Pastors too struggle. What am I going to do if I can't preach anymore? Parents, now that I'm no longer a parent or I don't, not in a good relationship with my kids anymore, do I have any sense of worth? What were all those years for? But when we find our identity in Christ, that I am loved and justified by God, even when maybe we're being treated unfairly, we can just move towards that person in love. You see, sometimes it, we think that it's coming off as, as unfair, as we're losing something, but actually we are gaining far more freedom. And this is what you must understand for yourself, that your love, the love your soul longs for must Find its rest in Christ. The love your soul longs for must find its rest in Christ. And you cannot fathom how absolutely life transforming this is when you come to that wonderful treasure of saying, All I have and need is in Christ. The freedom that comes from it, that it frees you from the poison of bitterness and shame. When you, as a parent, become far more free to love your children in far greater ways when you first love Jesus more and you rest in his love rather than in their success, you will far more be able to parent them with love and kindness and generosity and to show them the love that actually their hearts long for and will be satisfied in and if you make them your entire world and you find your entire identity in, 
in them and their success in your relationship with them. Spouses, as much and as good as it is, and all these loves are given to us for, for us to enjoy, but not to be the primary love. But as good as that love that is with your spouse, if you're seeking to find your whole identity in that, when your spouse is angry with you, when your spouse is upset with you because you, you know, left the door open yet again, rather than flying into rage because you feel like they're robbing you of your identity, your worth, your justification, even if you didn't do it, even if it was completely unfair, if you're in a relationship that is with somebody who maybe constantly criticizes you, you'll be able to move towards them in love. Now, when you're able to do that, so often what that will happen is you will begin to, to put forth the aroma of Christ. And maybe that'll change the other person as well. Maybe that'll create a completely different atmosphere. Maybe not. But you will dance in the freedom of God's love rather than being controlled in your own bitterness and resentment. And your love will sing as it finds and rejoices in the love you were always made to have. But that love comes from trusting in the finished and complete work in Jesus Christ. You see, you may be saying, well, how can I know that God loves me? How can I know if you're saying this is the love I'm made for? It sure feels like I can't be secure in that love. And that's a lie from the enemy. You can, if you completely submit yourself to this love, to find your rest in this love, and you can know that this love is real because God held nothing back in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to make the perfect atonement for sin, raising him from the dead. We have that full assurance of God's love towards us. The question is, can you rest in that grace or do you want to try to find it, try and find ways to earn that love? You see, Saul can never fully rest in being chosen as the king in a creative madness. I know in my own life, when I struggle to rest in the grace of Jesus Christ, when I, when I, when I struggle to rest in the assurance of his love for me, in the forgiveness of sins that has removed my shame, the end result is anxiety. It's obsessive compulsive behavior. It's fear. I begin to distance myself from others, from my loved ones, from, from my church, because I'm constantly feeling insecure. What is the antidote to that? It's justification by faith. I have been made right with God through what Christ has done. And constantly bringing my hopes, my attention, my very thoughts back to the reality of who God is and what he has done for me and the reality of the forgiveness of my sins. And that frees me then to live 
in light of that gospel in a way that reflects his love, that finds its satisfaction in nothing else but that grace and that mercy. The question is, my friends, are you resting in that love? Or are you constantly obsessing and trying to find your identity and your hope in something else? That path, that leads to madness. That leads to isolation. That leads to broken relationships. But the path of life, of love, of freedom comes from resting and trusting in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that love will never leave you. That love will never forsake you when you trust in it. When you make God your Savior and your Lord, submitting yourself to him in all of your ways. I want you to do that today.